This is Frank Falvey, and you are now going to listen to part two of our post-election discussion with our guest, Jeff Roy. So, Jim, after the first hour, what do you think? Well, I tell you, it's a lot more nuanced than I ever expected. So I'm just going to continue to sit back, enjoy my popcorn, and Jeff Roy. You know, um, it's, it is interesting listening to those remarks from Bernie Sanders because it brings me back to the debate that we had uh, about how to properly do mail-in voting. Mm-hmm. And there were some who were suggesting we should not allow uh, for early counting of the ballots. I'm sure glad that uh, that argument did not prevail and that we allowed uh, early counting. The danger that uh, Jim, we uh, Jeff, kept- I didn't think any ballot was counted until election day. The no. envelopes were opened, I thought, and Pre- and, prepared, yeah. and prepared. But no. uh, my impression is that no state has allowed early counting and no state has allowed the count of of ballots before the close of the let, of the polls. Am I wrong? Yeah, they uh, in Franklin, as a matter of fact, they counted the ballots on Saturday and Sunday before uh, the Tuesday election. And if you look at your election results, you'll see they have two columns on there. One that says um, the precinct totals, that, those were the totals for the day of the election and then they gave early vote totals. So they they did add them up. The danger we saw in allowing people to count the ballots early was that information may leak out about who is winning the election. I'm happy that uh, none of that information leaked uh, and we made it a crime to uh, report the results of the election beforehand. And you can't report the results until after eight o'clock on the Tuesday of the election. But they were able to count them early and that's what gave you early results in Massachusetts because you know you weren't gonna force them. In Franklin, for example, 14,000 people voted by mail or early. And by not forcing the election workers to count those on the same day uh, as the ballots that came in that day allowed for a much smoother process and uh, allowed for us to get our results. I think we had results by uh, 10 after nine on Tuesday night. So, uh, you know, states like Michigan, they petitioned their legislature. I saw the uh, Secretary of State from Michigan saying, I petitioned the legislature to give us the ability to count these ballots early. They said no, and that's why we're counting these ballots, and it's going to take us two or three days to do it. Same thing with uh, Pennsylvania. So I agree there should be some uniformity uh, in that process, and uh, I'd love to see a a commission put together that will look at uh, the Electoral College and uh, reforms on that. I'd like to see experts get in a room and see uh, if change is necessary to that process, because um, to every year see that the person who loses the popular vote gets elected as the president, uh, I, I'm growing uncomfortable with that. I, I would like to take this opportunity to uh, 
congratulate the town clerk, Nancy. Nancy Danello, yeah. Nancy Danello. I thought she did an absolutely wonderful, superb job. And Pete, can you play the clip from the other night where she addressed the uh, town council? I will. I'll play a little bit of excerpt of that. Here it is. Presentations and discussions. Uh, first one up tonight, appropriately, is our, <laughs> our temporary town clerk, Nancy Danello. Thank you, and congratulations. Thank you. So thank you, Mr. Chairman and council members. I'm happy to report that last night's election brought out a total of 6,155 voters. Ballots are still pouring in, and we're able to accept them until November 6th. They must be postmarked November 3rd. Our total vote by mail received was 8,265, and in-person early voting was 6,060, for a total of 20,480 votes cast as of today. That number, again, will change as votes continue to pour in. So total registered voters in Franklin are 24,758. We had a total of 83% voter turnout. Excellent. That's 6,400 more than the election in 2016. So my preliminary research indicates that when all ballots are tabulated and official results are announced, this election will be the highest turnout in Franklin's history. So if I could take a few minutes now of your time, I just want to express my deepest gratitude to my amazing team, my staff, Melissa, Patty, and Susan, who worked right alongside me for countless hours to ensure that this election would be a success. <clears throat> my wardens, Joanne, Joanne, <laughs> Barbara, and Mary Beth, they are amazing. They were right there with us, willing to do whatever was asked and always with a smile on their face. Love those ladies. My library ladies, amazing. Um, I was so fortunate to take them on. Mary, Mitzi, Caroline, and Cindy, who are always up for a challenge. Boy, can they file, too. <laughs> Unbelievable. Great. Thank you, Felicia. <laughs> All of my election workers, both rookies and veterans, always so pleasant to the residents. Mm -hmm. The administration, I thank you. Jamie, Chrissy, Alicia, Anne-Marie, you're amazing. I'm so honored to work with you. Anything I needed, you were right there. Thank you, thank you. Every department head and their staff, thank you for your willingness to work after hours, taking in ballots through the drive-up. We're a team, and I couldn't be prouder. Thank you a million times. TJ, the police officers, for all their support and hard work. Rich Gaskin and his team, facilities for setting up the polls, Location, the polling location, I'm sorry, and transporting many bins of supplies needed for the day. And you know, they really like to meet. I think we had like five meetings in like <laughs> two weeks. <laughs> Karen Bratt and Sandy from HR for the hiring process of the many residents who were so eager to assist us with the election. Jim and Carol Dacey for so graciously coming out of retirement to calculate our numbers for us. The high school students who are always a pleasure to have. I think I see future election workers. <laughs> All of you council members, I thank you for believing and supporting us. And finally, the voters, a huge thank you for the many compliments that were received. 
when we started our motto, Patty Wiley started this, our motto hmm. was, we're going to shine so bright that they're going to see us from the moon. I thank you all, hmm. all of you, for making us shine so bright. Thank you. And you know, while we're talking about the polls, and we just heard Nancy uh, uh, speaking about the poll workers here in Franklin, they did a wonderful, wonderful job. But one of the things that that uh, the Trump administration's pushback on uh, legitimacy, if you will, of the of the counted uh, ballot process has done is lifted the curtain curtain on the process itself. And Pete said earlier, it's uh, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about the fact that it's not uniform. Uh, and we're seeing these states uh, uh, being sued and suing for opportunities to do things differently. And, and it's very, very confusing uh, to everybody, I would argue. And CNN and many of the people are reporting right out of the out of the counting rooms. And you're seeing ballots being processed right behind them. And it's kind of lifted that veil. And I think it's made people very uncomfortable. Uh, but we have to assume that uh, everything that that Trump's done. Uh, it, whether, you know, on his way out and while he's been in office is going to, can be repeated again down the road. And so uh, I think one of the services that, that, that has resulted from this are conversations like this about the integrity of the, of the counted ballot, uh, whether it's mail-in or, or the whole process, because um, it, it is going to be challenged, uh, not only now, but it will be challenged again in the future. And we have to clean this up if this is going to become a new standard for us. People are in the streets chanting, count that vote or stop the vote, just stop the count. I mean, they're coming from a position of, of not even understanding how in their own state, let alone in each individual state, votes are processed and counted. And so we've got to, it's an imperative that we clean this up. And I would love to see a national standard. Um, well, I think Pete was suggesting that Maine and another state actually vote by congressional district. In other words, if the congressional district was one for one candidate, uh, that uh, congressional district represents one electoral vote um, of the state. That makes some sense. I if I have serious uh, reservations about calling a constitutional convention because I, I said a commission, not a convention. No, I understand that. But, yeah. but it, it, there's only two ways you can change the constitution. One is by a constitutional convention. The other is by uh, the uh, both houses of Congress and the president uh, passing a proposed amendment to the constitution which then needs to be ratified, I believe, by two-thirds of uh, the states. Uh, the Equal Rights Amendment never got the two-thirds uh, vote. Uh, so, the, so a commission that then recommended an amendment uh, to the Constitution might make some sense, but a constitutional convention absolutely scares me. And so a, a middle ground might be allowing states uh, to uh, vote by a congressional district. Sure, and let them determine um, what direction to give to their electors. And I, I think a lot of states have done that. 
but we definitely need some uniformity in that process. I am thrilled to see that the rank vote choice uh, question ballot in Massachusetts uh, failed by quite a significant amount, given the fact that all of the TV ad advertisement was all one way. There wasn't, uh, I believe, one ad. Uh, uh, I, I'm probably the only one in Franklin that had a lawn sign that said, vote no on, on uh, rank choice voting. I think uh, that type of direction is is absolutely false. Uh, it, it's on a false premise uh, that uh, it's there's more support for the second choice. It's too confusing. I don't believe the premise that it's on is correct, and I'm thrilled that uh, it failed. Yeah, my is reluctance it, with that question focused on. Um, I'm a little uncertain as to the constitutionality of that uh, process and uh, would like to see either an advisory opinion from uh, the Supreme Judicial Court or the U.S. Supreme Court uh, as to whether or not that process violates the principle of one man, one vote. That I'd like to hear before making a decision on a question like ranked choice voting, because, you know, essentially... Um, for example, in the fourth congressional district, we had a baseball team running for the Democratic nomination for uh, Congress. So there were nine people in that race. Uh, and essentially, people would be casting up to nine votes in that race. And I, I, I just want to see or want to hear uh, about the constitutionality of that process. The Franklin ballot question uh, passed, uh, I believe, around 11,000 to, to 7,000. There was significant opposition to it. And Jeff, you know the thing that I said time and time again, either on a local basis, the town council needs to say that on any ballot question, they need to send out a pamphlet given the pros and cons like the state does with state ballot questions, or the state needs to change the law mandating that towns send out the ballot question with the pros and cons explaining it uh, as part of the requirements for transparency in, in government. I, I, mean, I am sure that there's a significant number of Franklin residents that went to the polls and absolutely for the first time saw the ballot question on the ballot. Yeah, I think uh, I think you um, are on to something and uh, we should be doing that. It's a I don't expect that people are going to sit in the poll booth and read and contemplate on a question. Uh, they need to know the answer to that question uh, before they go in there and um, these pamphlets are extremely helpful. I do give a lot of credit to the CPA committee in Franklin that uh, tried to get out as much information as possible, and they did a very good job in it. Uh, but I certainly would have liked to have heard from the cons as well. Um, you know, I was a strong supporter of the CPA question, but um, I love hearing uh, from other people about other arguments. I did not hear much 
um, from the vote no uh, side of it. And um, I think your idea of requiring communities to do uh, pamphlets or pros and cons is a solid one. And uh, I am going to work on crafting just that type of legislation uh, in January. A lot of people, Jeff, are bringing up social injustice. Election workers traditionally have only worked on election day and, and they've been older seniors, basically. And they've worked 16 hours. And they're not paid time and a half over eight hours, which is legal. I mean, it's 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 fine. But other town uh, contracts, union contracts, probably call for pay over eight hours in a day. Why is is the town inadvertently uh, taking advantage of people now that have to wear masks and may be working over eight hours in a day? Shouldn't the town pay uh, those individuals if time and a half if they work more than eight hours? Because there's an easy solution to get around it. Just have two shifts of eight hours if you don't want to pay the time and a half. But wearing a mask uh, for all that time, it seems to me uh, that we're taking advantage of, of older citizens who are just trying to do a community service. Yeah, that you know, it's an interesting question, not one that I have uh, ever really thought about. Um, you're certainly giving me food for thought. Um, I praise and the poll workers who did an incredible job under incredible circumstances. Uh, the fact that they showed up to do it, um, you know, is is amazing. And you know, I know some many companies that gave what they called uh, combat pay for people uh, who worked in the face of the pandemic. They would either increase their hourly wage or uh, you know, give them some bonus money. Uh, I certainly would be in favor of uh, rewarding these people who showed up uh, to do uh, a job and put themselves at risk. Um, I'm not sure that that would be popular. Uh, in in the local government, they'd, they'd be looking at me and saying, "Okay, here's a, here comes another state mandate. Uh, you know, if you want us to pay those extra wages, give us more money from the uh, state government." I can hear it now, but uh, you know, uh, you have to reward people for the job they do. That's how you attract good people uh, to do this. And uh, working in a polling place for an election, which is the foundation stone of democracy, is important work, and we ought to value it uh, appropriately. So I'll have conversations with uh, our local leaders to see if we can do something along those lines. Let me throw out, I think the Boston Globe did a disservice by endorsing Ed Markey and recommending he be reelected to the Senate, and also by endorsing uh, Jake for the uh, seat in the representatives. On the Ed Markey side, senators and Supreme Court justices never resign, even though their health has deteriorated to the point that they can no longer really perform their job. Uh, Ed is going to be, I believe, 80 years old at the end of a six-year term. If somewhere during that term, he becomes incapacitated to, to a degree 
I don't envision that he would ever give up his office. Kennedy, um, Feinstein from uh, California is still serving as the chair, uh, as the alternate chair of the Judiciary Committee. They just don't give up, and and even in the House of Representatives, uh, we reelected all of our representatives that were up for re-election. Not one of them uh, decided after years and years of service to retire, uh, and they all got reelected. Was the Boston, I think the Boston Globe was influential in those two races as to who won, and I don't believe they did us a, a, a good service. Well, I, I think you know who I supported in the uh, United States Senate race. I made no secret about uh, my support for uh, Joe Kennedy. Um, uh, it didn't have anything to do with ageism, but, uh, you know, we have to take responsibility as citizens in a democracy to, you know, elect those who we think can best serve us. And, uh, you know, I have heard a lot of talk about uh, term limits. And I say, yeah, we have term limits in Massachusetts. They're called elections. If we don't like a candidate, uh, we can get them out. On the other hand, uh, we have mandatory retirement for our judges in Massachusetts. Once you reach the age of 70, you, you have to retire. That has, you know, led to a, a lot of movement on the bench in Massachusetts. And I actually think it's a, it's a good idea. I, I think we could conceivably boost the retirement age to 75, but it has really worked to move people in and out of the uh, judicial system. And uh, to the point where uh, Governor Baker uh, is the first governor since John Hancock to appoint all members of the Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts. I don't know if you were aware of that, uh, but that's how long it's been uh, for a, a governor to have appointed all uh, justices. And he will have appointed all seven of the Supreme Judicial Court judges uh, by 2021. Uh, and that's because we have a mandatory retirement age of uh, 70 in Massachusetts. You know, there was uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, in his court packing plan back in the, in the 40s or the 30s, uh, said, you know, once a justice reaches a certain age, uh, then I want to have the ability as the president to appoint a new justice. That old justice can stay there, but um, we want to bring some new blood in. So there's, you know, been a lot of people thinking about your very question. Um, Constitutionally, in the U.S. Constitution, as I read it, I do not believe you could set age limits for the Supreme Court justices because of the way it's worded. You, right. you, you're familiar with the Constitution uh, right. also. Do you yep. agree with that? I agree with that assessment. They serve uh, uh, as long as they are able during a term of good behavior. That's what it is. So there's no mandatory retirement under the U.S. Constitution. Jim, from the point of view of, of uh, the Safe Coalition and other nonprofits, how, how do you view uh, the state election results? Are they, are they going to be favorable uh, to nonprofits and, and organizations that are trying specifically to help people? 
Yeah, I think they are. Um, I can start with uh, Jake Auchincloss. He was at our open house. Um, I know that he's visited with the food pantry and uh, is very supportive of the efforts in the community and was very interested in the conversation about how he can help represent us uh, and our needs. And, and much of that is around grant funding and, and how we can advocate for uh, better, more effective and more robust grants to help organizations like ours. I know locally, um, uh, Becca Rausch, I had a very similar conversation. I've had conversations with Karen Spilka uh, and Jeff Roy is, uh, was the tip of the spear when it came to the Safe Coalition and has effectively advocated for what would have been 200,000 of grant funding through the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And I might add that from my perspective, uh, and I know this isn't unique to the Safe Coalition, when the representative gets to know the works of the of of whatever whatever nonprofit that they're advocating for, it, it's a critical thing because I'll give you an example. A lot of the grant money that we've received or is available to people in the substance abuse uh, space has guardrails on it that have been long uh, outdated. They're outdated guardrails. They're they're formulas uh, that you have to perform to that make much of the funding at best it's clumsy to work with work with or in some cases make it wasteful and when you have a representative that is in listening to you and you have an open line of communication and can advocate for you then you have a better chance at doing something that we most recently got which is a grant that was administered not through uh, old guardrails that we had but through the commonwealth but uh, through the uh, attorney, uh, sorry, Maury Hilly's office, yeah, yep. uh, uh, in, in which uh, we were basically given free reign to spend the money the way that we saw fit within the community. And that gave us an opportunity to enhance services where we knew they had to be enhanced and be more effective with the taxpayer's money. And I think that, um, so yeah, I am very, very confident uh, that the leadership that we just elected uh, will fairly represent not only our coalition, but other nonprofits in the community. And I think it's it's because of people like Jeff Roy who who advocate for us and bring those leaders into our communities and, and uh, make them available uh, so that they can hear what is happening at the ground level, that uh, the taxpayers ultimately get the best value for their for their locally spent dollar. Going on to a, a different area. Uh, in my interviews with particularly candidates to be a part of the U.S. House of Representatives, I asked many of them that my concern about the city of Boston, Chicago, L.A., large cities, that children are being killed by large numbers. In fact, it, was a, it may still be there, a huge sign if you go over the bridge to Penway Park, over the Mass Pike, you see the number of children that have been killed by gun violence. And none of them, outside of saying that we need better gun controls, seem to have any handle uh, on how to, how to curb this. Uh, it seems two things. One is we've never learned how to curb protest violence that has turned violent to breaking into stores, and we've never even paid attention to the killing of children. Even Black Lives Matters doesn't seem to have that as a priority. And I always thought uh, children were, you know, 
most important. Pete, do you have any reflection on on why this violence has not, we have not found a solution? Let's start with the Second Amendment. You're talking about a hot button issue with respect to gun rights. Now, in the past, I know that you and Matt Rivendro have talked about Second Amendment rights and that both of you support them for different reasons, and that's all good. It gets us into a discussion about can rights be regulated? Now, we talk about driving, but driving is regarded as a privilege rather than a right, if you read the legal language. And yet driving at the same time has regulation. You need to be licensed, you need to be trained, you need to be responsible and demonstrate that responsibility in a driving test. It opens the discussion, an unsavory discussion for many, just to be fair, of the idea of supporting gun rights and balancing those rights with some form of responsibility. And that responsibility would most likely come in the form of uh, testing and licensing similar to what you do when you learn to drive a car or what else. And of course that generates a massive hue and cry uh, with the NRA and other gun rights lobbyists. So until we're ready to have that discussion, uh, and I'm not saying I'm advocating or whatnot, but if you're looking for the nexus, the nub, the center of it, if you address that issue, then you're addressing all the follow-on issues with respect to the resulting gun violence Let's also address the emotion that goes with it. Many of these things are crimes of passion and emotion and when people get out of control. And so I don't know what you do in order to mitigate that. I, will, I don't uh, think, I, I don't think it, Peter, would make one bit of a difference if we passed gun rights or controls in the killings in the cities that are happening. It, it seems to be me that we're allowing gangs and gang violence to uh, control areas of the city where we don't have a a cohesive plan and in that gun control or uh, or making it a privilege i don't believe will make one one iota of a difference of what's happening in the cities that are, are resulting in children being killed now, I'm familiar with the notion of, you know, if you outlaw guns, only outlaws will have guns. And, and that's pointing to that, you know, perhaps simplistic statement. And, but I don't disregard it. I'm just saying I don't know what the tools are that remove guns from the circumstances that create needless death. And neither does anyone running for office. Yeah. Well, uh, let me let me share with you a story from the beginning of my legislative career. Okay, I got elected in November of 2012, and one of the things that they do uh, before you actually take your seat in the house is send you to a training program. It happens to be out at uh, UMass Amherst, and I call it legislative boot camp. Uh -huh. And you meet with all the people who uh, work in the state house, and you learn. Uh, you know, how to make a motion, how to file a bill, how to uh, you know, file amendment, how to speak on the floor, rules of order, and all of that. And, uh, you know, I spent uh, the second week of December of 2012 at this program. And uh, Friday morning, 
uh, we all got together for a collation and we're talking and we're all excited about being uh, new legislators. And I was thinking, uh, what are the issues I'm going to be working on? Um, and, you know, began to think about it because it was about three weeks away from me getting sworn in. And I got into my car at around noontime on Friday, December 14th of 2012. And I was driving home from UMass Amherst to coming back to Franklin. And I turned on the radio and the Newtown shooting had occurred that morning. Mm. And um, I can't tell you uh, the emotions that were going through my mind, but I knew at that moment that gun safety was going to be one of the top priorities that we were going to be working on in my first term. And that, in fact, was the case. Uh, we didn't rush to, into uh, doing a gun safety piece of legislation. As a matter of fact, uh, it took us about a year and a half to produce a bill that we were going to pass. But I also, I actually took a gun safety course with uh, the GOAL folks, which is the statewide agency. Uh, and I wanted to get, I had never handled a weapon other than a rifle at Boy Scout camp back in the 70s. But I wanted to understand what people have to go through uh, to become licensed. So I took the course, I um, got a license to carry a concealed weapon and uh, went through that whole process so that I could understand. And one thing I learned that was even the gun enthusiasts and those people who were members of the NRA and, and GOAL want people to use weapons properly. They don't want crazy people possessing weapons. So we came to that deep understanding, and I think that's why we were successful in getting a gun control piece of legislation. Now, I agree with you that it doesn't take care of every uh, situation, but we have some of the strongest and toughest gun laws in the United States. And some of the other things that have been successful along these lines uh, have been gun buyback programs to get the e illegal guns off the street. That's really where the problem lies, the illegal guns. And, uh, you know, it's going to continue to take some work because, as you said early on, when you start talking about these issues, it brings out a real, uh, you know, visceral and emotional discussion about uh, uh, curtailing rights. Um, you know, I'll say the First Amendment, uh, you know, protects free speech, but uh, doesn't give you the right to yell fire in a crowded theater. I think that's the seminal uh, Supreme Court case. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always tell people, your right to swing your fists ends at the tip of my nose. So, uh, you know, we do curtail rights, even those enshrined in the Bill of Rights. And, uh, you know, so we carefully look at these things and, uh, you know, I don't think uh, anybody hesitates to try and uh, do gun safety. I mean, we ban assault weapons in Massachusetts. On the federal level, uh, that ban on assault weapons expired. I say we have far more coverage, far more courage uh, in the state government to take that step uh, than our federal government does. This is uh, Frank Falvey with Frank Presents, and we've been uh, covering the uh, election on, uh, again, recorded on November 5th at uh, early in the morning, 9 o'clock to uh, whatever. And I want to thank uh, both uh, Jeff Roy, 
I want to uh, thank Jim Derrick, and I want to thank uh, Pete, uh, all of us for participating. It has been a wide and a very discussion. And if you're listening to 102.9 FM or you're uh, getting us over the uh, computer, uh, we would appreciate your feedback. You can uh, simply send us an, uh, an email by info at wfpr.fm. Uh, you can also contact us at 508-528-WFPR. It's just that simple. And uh, we're all, all of us are relieved that by the time you hear this show, hopefully you'll know who the President of the United States is. Thank you for listening. Jeff, thanks for being with us, really. Very, very Thank great, you. great, wonderful Thank discussion. You. It's an honor and a privilege, and I look forward to the next one because these are, these are exciting conversations and conversations that we need to have. So thank you.